The American History Podcast, Season 1, Episode 6, Maryland and the Carolinas. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Originally, this episode was released in the summer of 2017. It is now the summer of 2020, and in celebration of our third anniversary, I'm remastering all of these early episodes to bring the sound quality up to snuff, so to speak. I just wanted to mention that, as well as note that for this episode, I'm not really changing the script. Okay, so with that said, on with the show as originally written. Welcome to Episode 6, The Southern Colonies Part 2. Before we get started, just a few housekeeping issues. First, if you like the show, please give us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you use in order to listen to the show. Those reviews are incredibly important to the show and our ability to keep it free. You can also use um, one of the Amazon buttons on our source page to do your shopping when you shop on Amazon. You don't have to buy the actual book if you don't want, but as long as you enter Amazon through those links, we'll get a small fee, which definitely helps keep the lights on around here. Just a quick review of our last episode. We spoke about the founding of Virginia and I'd like you to keep those dates in mind. Remember, well before the founding of Plymouth Colony, you get the settlement of Jamestown in Virginia. You also had the Virginia House of Burgesses passing laws before the arrival of the Pilgrims. All right, let's take a look at Maryland now. This colony was created when King Charles I gave Sir George Calvert, the first Lord of Baltimore, a portion of Virginia for the creation of a Catholic haven. It's also hoped that Calvert would turn a prophet. Eventually, the growth of Protestants meant Catholics were a minority, even in Maryland, and those Catholics certainly lived in fear of losing their religious freedom. Because of this, the Act of Toleration of 1649 was passed. This guaranteed toleration to all Christians in the colony, but instituted the death penalty for anyone who denied the divinity of Jesus. So, for example, Jews and atheists could be punished by death. Now, the motive behind this law was the desire of Catholics to protect their faith by granting a certain amount of religious freedom to others who were also Christian. Thus, Maryland became the largest haven for Catholics in the British American colonies. Now, while life was fairly decent for Christians of different faiths, at least from a religious point of view, in other regards, life in the Chesapeake region could be perilous. Thanks to diseases such as malaria, dysentery, and typhoid, the average person's life expectancy in the region was 10 years shorter than in other areas. Further, half of all people who lived in Virginia and Maryland did not live beyond the age of 20. Less than 25% of all men lived to the age of 50, while for women, only 25% made it to age 40. So as you can imagine, immigration would be an important source when it came to replacing and expanding the population. Most of the people who were immigrating to the colonies were men in their late teens and early 20s, but unfortunately, most died soon after arrival. The men who did survive competed with each other for the few women who lived in the colonies, although some women did come over as what were referred to as tobacco brides. These women were recruited to come to Virginia with the settlers paying the travel costs of the women in tobacco. However, the reality is that most men could not find mates. There were far more men than women. Eventually, the region stabilized thanks to increasing immunity from the diseases and the rising influx of women. By 1700, for example, Virginia was the most populous colony, with a population around 50,000 colonists, and Maryland was the third most populous, 
with a total population numbering around 30,000. Now, the tobacco plantation economy was at the center of life in the region at this point in time, and it was one which was in need of a large labor force. At first, the economy is going to be reliant upon indentured servants, and the first Africans who arrived in Virginia in 1619 came as that, indentured servants. And all throughout most of the 17th century, it was primarily white English indentured servants who were being used. So how did it work? There was a system which is referred to as the headright system. A planter would pay for the passage of a white indentured servant, and he, the planter, would be granted 50 acres of land, and, of course, had himself someone to work that land. The worker had his or her passage from England to the colony paid for, and then they would work for a designated amount of time to pay that passage back. The term was usually five to seven years. Thanks to this system, landowners would acquire huge tracts of land. Now, what happened to the indentured servant after the contract expired? Early in the 17th century, they were often given some money and, in some cases, even some land as well as supplies to start their own farm. Oftentimes, however, the land would end up being in the backcountry, and the settler would have problems with local Indian tribes. Later in the century, former indentured servants would be given little, if any, such assistance. By 1700, planters brought in about 100,000 indentured servants, or about 75% of all European immigrants to Virginia and Maryland. Of course, you can imagine that all of this expansion resulted in conflicts with the neighboring American Indians. Europeans were land-hungry, desiring land to create tobacco farms. Eventually, the Anglo-Poetan Wars, a series of conflicts that lasted between 1610 and 1646, would break out and the result was the removal of natives from eastern Virginia. Now, by, late, by the late 17th century, there is a large amount of frustrated former indentured servants in the colonies. Many of them had come over with dreams of starting a new life, but without a way to gain land, they were no better off than they had been in Europe. Many of them lived in western Virginia and resented the planter aristocracy of the East. They were often too poor to own land and could not find any wives. Men still outnumbered women. Because freedmen were denied access to the land grants in the East, they had to squat on lands in the West where they often came into conflict with Native Americans. This further stoked the resentment of the poor whites who felt the government of Virginia was not doing enough to protect white settlers from Indians. Now, not all whites had poor relations with Native Americans. Governor Berkeley was generally friendly towards Native Americans, many of whom traded with the colony. Of course, white merchants who were engaged in trade with the natives also looked positively on Indians. Indeed, the House of Burgesses did not usually order an attack on Native tribe if that tribe was one which cooperated with the colonial government. Having said that, there were certainly whites who did not look favorably upon their neighbors. One such person was Nathaniel Bacon, an aristocrat who lived in the western portion of the colony and was a member of the House of Burgesses. Taking matters into his own hands, Bacon mobilized a militia to protect whites from the natives. In 1676, Bacon's militia attacked Indians on the western frontier and even set fire to Jamestown, forcing the governor to flee. Bacon and his followers were opposed to the aristocracy, or what we might refer to as the establishment, and Native Americans. In the end, the rebellion was unsuccessful as Bacon died of disease and the governor was able to crush the rebellion. However, that rebellion has a major effect in the coming years. The planters would see white indentured servants as too difficult to control, and began to look elsewhere for a source of labor, African slaves. Further, the planters increasingly promoted racial ideas to encourage poor whites to discriminate against blacks. 
The fear amongst the planters was that poor whites and blacks could align again at some future point and threaten their hold on power. When it comes to the Carolinas, we must first understand the importance of the British West Indies and their impact upon these two colonies. First, the West Indies, especially Barbados, developed an economy based upon the production of sugar. They had a sugar plantation economy, and in order to have such an economy, they also needed a large labor force. Thus, they depended on African slavery, more so than any of the colonies in British North America ever did. Slaves in the British West Indies outnumbered whites four to one. That's a significant ratio, and meant certain strictures were developed in order to ensure the slaves did not rise up and overthrow their masters. First, Barbados developed and adopted slave codes in order to control the large population of slaves. Ironically, the slave code was supposed to protect masters from unruly slaves and slaves from cruel masters. Of course, in practice, these sorts of laws provided far more in the way of protection to the masters than they afforded to the slaves. Secondly, because the island was, in essence, a sugar island, its sole purpose was to produce sugar. It came to rely on the British American colonies for foodstuffs. One effect was that while there were small farmers in Barbados who owned slaves, they were slowly pushed out and, along with their slaves, came to Carolina to farm. By 1696, Carolina itself would adopt the strict Barbados slave code. As for economics, Carolina developed both rice and indigo plantations east of the fall line. This is where the flat coastal plain meets the Piedmont. To the west of this line, mostly small farmers and traders settled, displacing Native American tribes and pushing them west. This group would uh, overthrow the rule of absentee English owners as they sought more direct representation. I should note, this is a theme that you will see repeated again and again in American history. There is this slow movement towards more direct representation. You should also mention that by the second half of the 18th century, South Carolina was one of the wealthiest of the British North American colonies. Okay, so let's backtrack a bit. American colonization was interrupted during the English Civil War of the 1640s and Oliver Cromwell's protectorate of the 1650s. New colonies were not founded in North America until the restoration of the monarchy under Charles II. At this point, the new colonies of Carolina, New York, and Pennsylvania were formed, and thus are sometimes referred to as, quote, restoration colonies. Carolina, and there wasn't a North and South Carolina yet, was created in 1670 and named after King Charles II. The goal was to grow foodstuffs for the sugar plantations in places like Barbados, and also to export non-English products like wine, silk, and olive oil. They also exported American Indians as slaves to the West Indies and New England, and while we don't know the exact numbers, estimates run up to about 100,000. Do not, however, think the Indians took this lying down. The Yamasee Indians led a rebellion in 1715 against the advancing white settlers and the corrupt traders from Charleston, who captured and then sold them into slavery. Now, as I said earlier, rice became the main cash crop in the Carolina colony, and it was grown to be exported. By the early decades of the 18th century, indigo was the largest crop in Carolina, and Charleston became the most active and important seaport in the South. This was a center for the aristocratic younger brothers of English aristocrats. Remember, the younger sons did not inherit, thanks to primogeniture. Another point before we move on, one that I've hinted at, is the fact that Native American tribes and Spanish soldiers attacked Southern Carolina settlements. Both groups had a vested interest in keeping the English from moving further inland and further south. Remember, the Spanish owned Florida. 
Now let's talk about North Carolina. Officially created in 1712 as a refuge for poor whites and religious dissenters, it became the most democratic, independent, and least aristocratic of the original 13 colonies, and in this way it resembled Rhode Island. Economically, North Carolina would depend on tobacco, which was its main export and made it similar to Chesapeake. Another quick point worthy of mention is the fact that, for the most part, North Carolina and its colonists dealt quite ruthlessly with Native Americans and sold many Indians into slavery. So that leaves only Georgia. It was the last colony to be founded in 1733. Its founder was James Oglethorpe, and this colony was created as a haven for debtors and as a buffer against Spanish and American Indian incursions from the South. Initially, Georgia prohibited free blacks or slaves from living in the colony out of a fear that slavery might take hold there. This attitude would not last, and by the 1770s, it had plantations producing rice and indigo, and of course, used slaves to produce these products. Now, while Charles, uh, Carolina had Charleston, Georgia had Savannah, which emerges into a very diverse community, which included German Lutherans and Scottish Highlanders, but no Catholics. As for Georgia itself, English settlers made up a lower portion of the colony's population than any of the original 13 colonies, and it was the least populated of the 13. Okay, so that wraps up our overview of the Southern colonies. Next time, we will take an in-depth look at Southern culture. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, please give us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on. Feel free to email any questions that you have to me at sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter at AmericanHisCast. Also, please share the show with your friends, neighbors, relatives, all that good stuff. And until next time, have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. 